Mark Zuckerberg told The New Yorker the news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. So listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, the podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every day. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you get a rundown of what happened in the world of tech with all the headlines, context, commentaries, and tweets from all the biggest players. New episodes every day at 5 p.m. Eastern. Search your favorite podcast app for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Zenni offers thousands of affordable eyewear styles, starting at just $6.95. No ridiculous markups, no hassles, just quality, affordable eyewear delivered right to you. Visit Zenni today at zenni.com slash CNN. Good evening, quite a day. The president canceled his upcoming summit with North Korea's Kim Jong-un, praising the wonderful dialogue that was building between them, hinting at nuclear annihilation, and telling Kim to call a right any time. It took both Koreas by surprise, and we'll have the latest shortly on North Korea's reaction. But we begin tonight keeping them honest with the Justice Department briefing that took place today with members of Congress about the FBI's use of a confidential source during the 2016 campaign to investigate what we, now, uh, what we know now was Russian interference and disinformation. The first meeting, and originally the only one scheduled for today, was for Republicans only. Trey Gowdy and House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes, who, as you probably know, is already facing accusations of carrying water on several occasions for the White House. The second briefing, which came only after pressure from the Republican and Democratic leadership, was bipartisan, the so-called Gang of Eight, members of the House and Senate, which is the norm when it comes to sensitive intelligence. But keep it honest, there was something very abnormal about one particular aspect of the meeting, a person who turned up unexpectedly and set off criticisms and suspicions about whether the president is more interested in his own legal defense and his unfounded claims of a deep state conspiracy against him than anything else. This is the person who unexpectedly showed up, presidential lawyer Emmett Flood, an attorney on the White House staff. He appeared with the chief of staff, John Kelly. Now, no one knows who invited Flood to today's meeting. Flood was there at the start of both briefings. In case you're wondering what Flood's focus is, here's what White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said about him when he was recently hired. Emmett Flood will be joining the White House staff to represent the president and the administration against the Russia witch hunt, she said. So an attorney representing the president and his administration in the Russian investigation shows up to address two meetings of lawmakers and law enforcement officials who are going over highly sensitive information having to do with the Russian investigation. Now, according to the White House, Emmett Flood and John Kelly only made brief remarks before the meetings to relay the president's desire for, and I quote, as much openness as possible. We're told they then left the meetings. So a desire to relay the president's desire for openness is one explanation of why Flood was there. Here's another Rudy Giuliani, also the president's lawyer, telling Politico, quote, we want to see how the briefing went today and how much we learned from it. If we learned a good deal from it, it'll shorten that whole process considerably. As we said, a number of people in the room were very surprised to see the presidential lawyer there. And we're also just now learning that even some of the White House are having second thoughts about Flood's appearance. An official there saying his presence likely did not help with concerns that the briefings had become politicized. And remember, both meetings took place today in the middle of the president's effort to brand this FBI source as a spy targeting his campaign. He's tweeted or said some variation of the word spy 17 times since last Friday. We don't know what was revealed at the meetings today, but Intelligence Vice Chair and Democrat Adam Schiff, who was at the second meeting, said he heard no evidence of a spy in the campaign today. There is no evidence to support any allegation that the FBI or any intelligence agency placed a spy in the Trump campaign or otherwise failed to follow appropriate procedures and protocols. 
Well, CNN Chief Political Correspondent Dana Bash joins us now. She's got new reporting on Rudy Giuliani's take on the briefings today. So I know you just talked to Giuliani about mm-hmm. Emmett Flood and how exactly he ended up at the meeting. What do you say? That's right. I talked to him a couple of times tonight just before coming on. I did ask him if it was his understanding that Emmett Flood went to these meetings at the behest of the president or maybe under orders of the president. Now, he said that the president hasn't told him the answer is yes. But Giuliani told me that he assumes uh, that that was the reason why Flood went, because the president his client uh, and the person who Emmett Flood now works for inside the White House wanted him to be there. Now, Anderson, you mentioned the context of this, of why this is even a story uh, in the beginning. But but I can just tell you, as somebody who's covered Capitol Hill for many, many years, the protocol for most if not all so-called gang of eight meetings, when the intelligence community or the, or the law enforcement community is briefing the top law, uh, intelligence uh, lawmakers and leadership about issues like this, the White House isn't there. And that's even under the most benign circumstances. This adds a layer of the fact that the White House, meaning the president, is part of the investigation right. that they're talking about, which makes it so unbelievably unprecedented. Right. I mean, the idea that the president, uh, according to Giuliani, or, or what Giuliani believes, that the president would have told the, the, uh, the presidential attorney, uh, mm-hmm. Flood, uh, to go along with John Kelly and, and address both meetings mm-hmm. just to give them a sense that, you know, the president wants things to be as transparent as possible. I mean, that's it's pretty stunning. And I and I had a little bit of a back and forth with him on the on the phone about about this, saying it, it just doesn't really make any sense for Emmett Flood to have been at these meetings. And he argues that he obviously and the president and clearly Emmett Flood disagree that it is the president's prerogative uh, as somebody who is part of. Uh, the investigation and uh, the executive branch to know exactly what went on. And that is where the rub is. A very, very different point of view on what's appropriate. And and about all the concerns over this confidential source, Rudy Giuliani now appears to be kind of raising the stakes. That's right. He also earlier today uh, said to me that effectively that knowing what went on with this confidential source is a prerequisite for any conversation, any interview that the president will sit for with the special counsel. In fact, uh, tonight he even used a word uh, trapped. He said, I'm not going to send him in to get trapped uh, in an interview without knowing exactly what went on. And so that is certainly uh, does raise the stakes. It also, let's be honest, uh, kind of feeds into what the president's legal team, most of the legal team has wanted all along, which is no interview. And they are still facing a client, the president of the United States, who is still saying, even publicly today, he wants to sit down for an interview. Yeah. Dennis, stay right there. I want to bring in our legal team, CNN chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin, former FBI supervisory special agent Josh Campbell. I mean, Jeff, does it make sense to you, um, Rudy Giuliani? I mean, does he have the leverage to demand the information about this confidential source as a as a condition of an interview? Well, he can decline to give an interview for any reason or no reason at all, and then they'll just fight it out in court over over a subpoena. What looks to be going on here is that Giuliani is looking to create some sort of impasse so that he can decline an interview. I mean, I, the, 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 he, he seems to be erecting obstacles 
just so for the purpose of 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 uh, avoiding the right, interview. He's latching on to this so-called spy uh, issue. Right. And, and this so-called spy issue, first of all, there's absolutely no evidence there was a spy. Second of all, even if they learn the identity of this person, that has very little to do with what the president's actually going to be asked about. So it's really a fake issue. And what do you make of, the, of Flood showing up at, at this at both meetings today? Well, again, it, it's just what the president has been trying to do is discredit the investigation, discredit the FBI, discredit Mueller. And if he you know, sends his lawyer in to sort of preview what's going on, Again, that looks like advocacy. It doesn't look like a neutral investigation of the facts, which is what Gang of Eight investigations are supposed to be. And this is this is too rich. I mean, if you look at the underlying allegation here that the FBI sent someone into a scenario in order to gather information inappropriately, I think that's what we saw today. When you take a conflicted party like the president's lawyer who was hired to refute these allegations of Russian collusion, he's now being sent inappropriately into a location, and he's obviously going to report back. Now, I spent the better part of today uh, giving the White House the benefit of the doubt. I describe this as a perception problem. They just don't understand that this, is, this just looks bad to send someone in. But now to see Ruli Giuliani and come, come out and say, no, this is actually a strategy. We're going to learn what he said and incorporate that into our investigation. It's a definition of inappropriateness. Dan, I mean, what's the reaction you're hearing in Washington to the fact that the president's attorney flood was brought into the fold for a possible impeachment fight was there for at least, you know, the beginning of the briefing today, as far as we know? Look, we've seen so many examples of the norms being shattered, and this is a, a pretty uh, explosive example, I think. And and the reason is because, as I said, this isn't just about kind of the protocols, which were not followed uh, in that, I mean, they had to fight, they, the Democrats, and even some Republicans had to fight for the Democratic leaders and the lead Democrats on the intelligence committees even to be briefed in the first place. This time yesterday, we weren't even sure that was going to happen. But then once it happened, uh, the fact that it, it included somebody from the White House, whether or not he gave a, a, a statement at the top or he sat for the briefing, it's sort of not even relevant. Uh, it, it is unbelievably un, really unprecedented. And this is, again, not just from me covering it, this is from talking to people who have been involved in these kinds of briefings uh, for years who have said that they've never seen anything like it. Right, Jeff, I also don't understand the, the rationale that they're giving that he was there to express the president's desire for transparency. I mean, that just seems... Well, and also at this late state in, stage of the investigation, they know what the president's position is on transparency. This investigation has been going on a long time. This looks like what Giuliani said it was, which was an information gathering and advocacy mission by the president's chief of staff and his lawyer about something, a factual matter, that Congress is looking into. But, but that's not where they're supposed to be. It's, it's a congressional investigation, and it is, as Dana keeps pointing out, the gang of eight, you know, four Republicans, four Democrats, four from the House, four from the Senate. It's a formal process that is meant to be neutral in its political orientation. And to have the president's lawyer in there is just wildly inappropriate. Yeah, Judge, what impact do you think it has on, you know, Chris Ray of the FBI, uh, you know, Dan Coates, uh, DNI, uh, uh, anyone else from the Justice Department? So we've talked about the intelligence sources and methods and how that chilling effect is now going to go out around the world, essentially, for any 
officer of the government who's charged with running a human source, they're now going to their job has become harder to actually convince someone to come to their side to help them provide information. If you're Chris Ray and Rod Rosenstein of the DOJ, you likely went into that meeting with eight members of Congress who, again, are you know known to be a little loose lipped, Congress writ large, knowing that anything you said in that meeting could make it to the airwaves. So that's an unusual place to be in. But I think it's interesting if you look at you know what may have happened. And obviously, a lot of the details we don't have yet as far as what took place in that meeting. I think it's safe to assume that there wasn't some giant revelation of impropriety on the part of the FBI. And I think the reason we know that is because we didn't see Chairman Nunes tripping over his colleagues racing to the microphones to tell us about what he learned. Yeah, I mean, Dan, really all we've heard is from uh, from uh, uh, Adam Schiff so far. Right. And then and that's not much, uh, except that he indicated that there was nothing to suggest that there were nefarious spies, as uh, the president uh, and his and his aides are suggesting. And, 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 and Nunes and Gowdy reportedly didn't see the documents that that they wanted. Right. Right. I mean, and that's a whole nother issue is that this is not over um, politically when it comes to the president's allies on Capitol Hill. Everybody from Mark Meadows to others who kind of started the ball rolling, uh, demanding from the DOJ that they get to see information about this, uh, they weren't satisfied with the briefings that were set up in the first place. So you're right. The fact that, that they it seems they seem to have gotten even less access than they thought that they would means that, that the sort of the drumbeat is going to continue from Capitol Hill. And Dan is making a very important point here because this conflict, which, as she says, is not unresolved, is not resolved between uh, the House Republicans and in the in the White House on one side and uh, the Justice Department on the other, is perhaps an attempt to force Rod Rosenstein to resign in protest or to fire him, mm. which is something that the White House has been itching to do for a long time. So the fact that this crisis isn't over is very significant. Mm. Thanks, everybody. A lot more ahead, including more breaking news. We're learning that not only did the president turn down a meeting with Kim Jong-un, his team also said no back in January to Robert Mueller. We have details on that, including why that happened. Also, North Korea's reaction after the plug is pulled on the Singapore summit. We're live in North Korea ahead. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Our friends at Zenni Optical offer a huge variety of high-quality, stylish frames and state-of-the-art optics starting at just $6.95. You can get multiple frames with this great pricing for less than one pair elsewhere. Start building your eyewear wardrobe from the comfort of your own home at Zenni.com. With the latest trends in eyewear, available in hundreds of frame styles and materials, there isn't a better way to change it up for every season. Plus, Zenni offers prescription sunglasses at incredible prices. Visit Zenny today at zenny.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I dot com slash CNN. There is more breaking news on the Russia investigation to tell you about, not about the briefings that happened today, but a meeting that almost happened back in January between the president and special counsel Mueller. Now, tonight we're learning more about how it might have played out and why it ultimately did not. Our chief political analyst, Gloria Borger, and Evan Perez broke the story. Gloria joins us now. So, I mean, this is really the first time we've heard of any kind of a possible date for an interview between the president and Mueller. So what, what happened? Well, there was a meeting in uh, early to mid-January, and it was a very different time from the time uh, Dana Bash was talking about just earlier, because it was a time when the president's legal team actually wanted to get this all over with and have the president sit down. So there was a meeting with Mueller. He suggested, let's let's get the president on uh, January 27th and laid out 16 subjects 
And the president's legal team listened to it. They met among themselves later on, and they were even thinking, oh, maybe we could have this at Camp David. It might be a good place. We could do it privately on a Saturday. And then uh, after thinking about it, and there was some disagreement among the president's lawyers, but the lead of the president's legal team, John Dowd, uh, on January 29th, sent Mueller a letter, a 20-page letter, which uh, one source says the president read and approved, saying there is no way we are going to do this, both for constitutional issues, and we believe that you have all the information that you need from the millions of documents that we've handed over to you. Mm. And, and right around that time, the president was, was actually sounding sort of enthusiastic about talking right. to special counsel, right? He was. He was. I, on January 24th, uh, when reporters asked him, and here's the quote, I'm looking forward to it, actually, that he would have he would have liked to have an interview. But, but uh, and I think he probably was telling the truth at that time, I think after the Michael Cohen raid, uh, I've been told uh, the president said, no way, I'm not going to do it. And you've seen them ratcheting up uh, their attack on on Mueller and his team and the investigators since that point. I also understand you have reporting uh, about meetings between the president's legal team and Mueller that happened two months later in March. Right. So, you know, after this happened in January, there was kind of a lull because uh, the Mueller team and the Trump team were on very different places. So they had a meeting on March 5th and another one on March 12th. But at the March 5th meeting, uh, I'm told by a source... Mueller reiterated that he needed to see the president. He needed to talk to the president because he needed to know his intent before making certain decisions uh, in his presidency. And of course, we know what that refers to is the firing of James Comey. And at this point, uh, Mueller has not changed his mind. And the Trump team remains pretty entrenched about not having the president testify, as you as you keep hearing publicly from uh, from Giuliani. Mm, Gloria, thanks very much. Fascinating. Sure. More legal aid now. Joining us is CNN legal analyst John Dean and Kerry Cordero. John Dean, as you know, has seen these things from the inside. He was White House counsel to President Nixon. So, Kerry, what does it say that at, at least at one point in time, the president was even a little bit close to sitting down for an interview with Mueller? Well, you know, it really just shows how his not only has his legal team in terms of the personnel can uh, just changed and been a revolving door, but the strategy has changed. So at one point with a different set of players, it sounds like they were negotiating and they were um, perhaps didn't have the same. Uh, they had one set of constitutional concerns and now maybe there's a different set of constitutional concerns. And so the, the legal strategy, the legal analysis and then the actual approach and dealing with the special counsel's office just constantly seems in flux. And John, I mean, certainly things are not where they were back in January, to say, say the least. A lot, a lot has happened since then, including the raid on Michael Cohen's office. What do, what do you think the odds are the president actually sitting going to sit down to an interview without a fight at this point? I think there will be a fight. I don't think it's his option either, Anderson. I think what we're witnessing is very Trumpian, uh, where he is on all sides and all moods uh, at different times, at different stages of his thinking. And I think it's ultimately going to be resolved, as it has been with other presidents who've had to appear. The threat of the uh, subpoena will bring him uh, to a decision very quickly. And I'm not sure he can win... Uh, in court. I think this is a, I think indeed the law 
favors the special counsel and the Supreme Court. I looked at uh, the the number of precedent-setting uh, instances where Ken Starr went to the Supreme Court and how quickly he got those rulings, for example, on the protective privilege for Secret Service testifying. He broke that privilege and got a, uh, got, did it very quickly. Uh, so th- these things can happen faster rather than slow. Kerry, I wonder what you think about that, because the argument that the president's legal team uh, apparently is making is that uh, because uh, they believe Mueller is, for, is following Department of Justice guidelines and that, that the sitting president can't be indicted, that, that uh, the president can't be subpoenaed for something which is an, uh, an unindictable offense. Well, there are. I mean, there is no specific case on point of whether or not a sitting president has to appear before a grand jury to give oral testimony. So there's document cases, um, but there, there's not something on this specific issue. So it could be litigated. It seems like the president's team is leaning towards trying to drag this out and leaning towards perhaps forcing the special counsel's office to make that decision to serve a subpoena and fight it out in court. The irony is that the longer they drag this out, they increase the chances that the president will do more things that could add to the obstruction case. So the longer this drags out, he could fire more people. He could uh, sort of verbally or through Twitter um, intimidate witnesses. He could do other things in terms of his uh, coordination with Congress, trying to unearth things about the investigation that have the tendency to disrupt it. So there is actually, I think, a jeopardy in them dragging this out as well. John, uh, CNN reported this week that the president's legal team, they're trying to narrow the scope of any possible interview to questions on Russia-related matters that occurred before uh, President Trump's election, meaning no questions on possible obstruction of justice. Can you see any possible situation in which the special counsel agrees to that? It's an interesting argument that they would have no restrict, ability to restrict what happened before he became president and then have an ability to restrict uh, under an executive privilege theory uh, once he became president. It, it's, it's never been litigated, as was just noted, but uh, I don't think it'll play either. I think that once they get him in there, they're not going to agree to uh, the questions. We've seen the breadth of the proposed topics they want to discuss, as Gloria's reporting showed earlier today, uh, and they're all over. And and, they're, and Trump is not going to be able to control that. John Dean, I'm just curious, uh, given that you live through Watergate, I wonder what you make of the president's efforts to, to tag this as, as, you know, using the term spygate, as clearly trying to kind of <laughs> have a reference toward Watergate and basically saying, you know, if true, it's the, it's the biggest, uh, uh, you know, political story ever. Well, it seems he's taken, got his hands on the fog machine that Rudy Giuliani has been handling, and he's just trying to put smoke out there, uh, and it's not going to hold up. I think the briefing today pretty well showed that this was standard operating procedure by the FBI, and if anything, the FBI was protecting him and not spying on him, but rather being cautious in how they proceeded, trying to see if these people even knew that mm. they were dealing with uh, potential Russian infiltration of some kind. Yeah. So uh, the Spygate doesn't, doesn't work for me at all. Uh, John Dean, Kerry Cordero, thanks very much. Coming up, North Korea has just reacted to the president calling off the summit with Kim Jong-un. There's been a lot of question marks and anxiety over what they might say, given the stakes. The latest from the White House next and a rare live report from inside North Korea as well. Remember, to create an ad like this one, visit purewinning.com CNN. 
North Korea says it is still willing to meet with the United States at any time and in any way. A short time ago, a North Korean official responding to a letter from President Trump that called off the summit that was planned for less than three weeks from today. In a statement to state media, the official said the president's statement on the summit isn't in line with the wishes of those who hope for peace and stability on the Korean peninsula and in the world. The president's letter came after a North Korean official called Vice President Mike Pence a political dummy and threatened to, quote, make the U.S. taste an appalling tragedy it has neither experienced nor even imagined up to now. In the letter, the president says in part, and I quote, Sadly, based on the tremendous anger and open hostility displayed in your most recent statement, I feel it is inappropriate at this time to have this long-planned meeting. Therefore, please let this letter serve to represent that the Singapore summit, for the good of both parties but to the detriment of the world, will not take place. You talk about nuclear capabilities, but ours are so massive and powerful that I pray to God they will never have to be used. Or Pamela Brown joins us now from the White House. Can you explain just why, how this summit fell apart, Pamela? Well, a senior White House official, Anderson, says that the summit was canceled after a series of broken promises and odd judgment calls on the part of the North Koreans. Uh, And things really started to sour last week. Uh, U.S. officials say that the U.S. delegation in Singapore was there to set things up for the summit were essentially stood up by the North Koreans. The North Koreans' advance team never showed up. Uh, They said that a number of inquiries they sent to North Korea went unanswered. So that was a big red flag that also came at a time when North Korea had a change in tone when it released the statement last week uh, criticizing the U.S. for asking North Korea to disarm uh, and threatening to pull out of the summit. And then you had this statement, of course, uh, that came last night uh, from North Korea and calling the vice president a, a political dummy and threatening nuclear war. So you had all of that um, on top of the fact that Kim Jong-un had been a little bit skittish, showing some skittishness about uh, flying to Singapore. There were still some a big distance uh, on certain issues. Um, And so there was growing skepticism up until this point, but it really all culminated with that statement last night from North Korea, which led uh, to this letter that the president sent to Kim Jong-un today. I'm told that the administration had been expecting a response from North Korea through national security channels. They knew there would be a response to Mike Pence's statements he made on Fox News talking about the Libya model. Uh, But when they received that statement from North Korea threatening nuclear war, that is when the president met with his national security team and the prevailing um, option on the table last night was to pull out of the summit. The president wanted to sleep on it. And then this morning, of course, that letter was sent Anderson. And Pam, well, the president did threaten North Korea with military action this morning. I mean, he also left the door open for the summit to happen, even possibly Mm -hmm. on its original date of June 12th, right? That's right. It was interesting in the letter he sent to Kim Jong-un. On one hand, he's you know boasting about the military prowess in the United States. And on the other hand, he's inviting Kim Jong-un to uh, call him or write to him. Uh, the president has signaled that he still wants this summit to happen, even if it doesn't happen on June 12th as originally planned. Now, I asked a White House official today, what would it take uh, for the summit to be back on the tracks? And basically, the, the, the official said that the administration would need to see the opposite of what it has seen from North Korea this past week for it to happen, Anderson. Right, Pamela, thanks very much. Now, even as the summit was being called off, North Korea was taking steps to scale back its nuclear program, destroying structures at a nuclear test site. Journalists were there, including our Will Ripley, who joins us now uh, from the, uh, North Korea. So first off, when the news broke that President Trump was pulling out of the summit, you were actually the one to break the news to the North Korean officials there. How did, how did they react? How did that play out? We were on the train riding back from the nuclear test site, and it was late at night. We were actually getting ready to go to bed when I got the phone call. Uh, And 
uh, look, it was incredibly awkward and uncomfortable. They didn't give me a response, but they immediately got up and they got on the phone. And I assume we're relaying the message directly up to the office of Kim Jong-un. I'm told that we were actually the first ones to tell the North Koreans that this had happened. I was expecting an angrier response, given the tone and the statement about Vice President Pence. So when they came out, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, with this more measured diplomatic response, it shows that the North Koreans still want these talks to, to move forward, despite some of the, the, the rhetoric in recent days. And just in terms of the nuclear side itself, what were you able to, to see today? We were on the ground for more than nine hours, which was surprising. It took us more than 15 hours to get there. And they showed us each of the tunnels that North Korea has used to conduct nuclear tests, te- uh, six nuclear tests since 2006. They opened up the doors. We could see that they were rigged for explosives as far as the eye could see. Then we went up to these observation posts. We kind of hiked up the ravine and we watched them blow up each of the tunnels one by one. Uh, we also saw them blow up all of the structures that were on the site as well. So it was pretty uh, dramatic images, but it was hard to really know exactly what we were seeing, like how deep the explosions went, for example. Yeah, I mean, there's no way, I guess, to verify the North Korean claims that the tunnels are now permanently unusable. That's right, because we didn't have any nuclear weapons experts in the group. They were not invited in. It was only journalists. And so the North Koreans said, look, you've seen it with your own eyes. We're being transparent. But our point was... Well, we saw explosions, but we don't know exactly how this works. Could a bulldozer go in and reopen those tunnels tomorrow? Or or are they really permanently unusable, as the North Koreans claim? And obviously, it was dramatic to see them blowing up all the buildings that were used to house researchers and soldiers that were stationed at the nuclear site. But those buildings could also easily be rebuilt. So uh, there is uh, some skepticism from people that because experts weren't invited, was this really the step towards denuclearization that the North Koreans claimed that they showed us it was? Uh, But nonetheless, to have them blow up the nuclear site and then a couple of hours later, we learned that the summit is canceled after talking with officials who were already kind of feeling sad, frankly, about all of their work over more than a decade being blown up, uh, thinking that it was going to lead to something better for North Korea than to find out the talks are off. It was uh, it was really a, a surreal moment. Yeah, I've had Will Ripley. Thanks very much. Much more ahead in this. We're going to talk to the North uh, about the North Korean response uh, to the president's letter and what could happen next. I'm Andy Katz from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, just being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved, and uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. The breaking news, a response from North Korea after the president called off his planned summit with Kim Jong-un. Today, the president said the United States is ready if North Korea does anything, quote, foolish and reckless. Tonight, a North Korean official says it's still willing to meet with the U.S. at any time and in any way. Joining me now are CNN Chief International Correspondent Christian Amapur, CNN Global Affairs Analyst and Washington Post columnist Max Boot, and former CIA North Korea analyst Sumi Terry. Christian, I wonder what you think happened here. I mean, do you really believe it came down to, in the president's words, the tremendous anger and open hostility coming out of North Korea? Look, it's really interesting because those are the very words that Kim Gai Guan, who is the North Korean vice foreign minister in charge of the U.S. and nuclear brief, who I met back in 2008 around the same kind of issue and is a moderate on this issue, he used those words. And he said those words were in response to, and he called it a resistance to, the U.S., as he said, unacceptable and disgraceful attempt to pressure North Korea into unilateral disarmament ahead of the summit. So that's obviously how they're seeing um, what was going on. And I spoke to U.S. officials who have also been on this on this brief, 
And they said that, look, the cart, frankly, was put ahead of the horse from the beginning, that there were no parameters. The actual technical work had not been done to decide what were the red lines, what were the negotiations, what were the step-by-step process. So not enough work had been done to actually have a summit between two leaders, between the president of the United States and the leader of, uh, of North Korea. Yeah. Do- Dr. Turd, I mean, do you think that that played a big role? I mean, the administration... Uh, you know, this was a, usually summits are, are sort of from the bottom up. There's a lot of groundwork that's done, a lot of meetings, uh, weeks, months, if not years in some cases. And then the two leaders meet, uh, shake hands and sign something. Do you think it was partly a realization that, wait a minute, there's a lot of details to be worked out? Certainly, we were not prepared to have this summit uh, this just few weeks away. But I have to say, I think Kim Jong-un was actually not planning to uh, cancel the meeting by this statement that was made by Kim Gegan and his other deputy, Choi Son-hee. Actually, they were trying to signal to Washington they were, that they were very displeased about all this talk about Libya, which is obviously a nightmare scenario for North Korea, because that always reminds them of Gaddafi, um, that they didn't appreciate this talk, that they're not going to just cave to U.S. pressure. Uh, but I think they wanted this meeting. And this is why North Korea has just released a statement which is very measured, tempered, and disciplined for North Korean standards. So I think um, that message didn't get acro- come across to Washington. We just thought they were being very aggressive, but North Koreans were trying to send a signal, and it was just lost in translation, the whole thing was. Max, you tweeted uh, something I want to read to our viewers uh, about how President Trump canceled the summit with, quote, the kind of letter that he might have written to a high school crush with whom he was breaking up. Uh, I take it you're not that impressed with his style of diplomacy. Well, this is just the latest <clears throat> bizarre episode of, of Trump-style diplomacy. And remember, this is not the only diplomatic debacle this week for President Trump. This comes a few days after his attempts to reach a trade deal with China also crashed and burned. And he had to kind of admit that he hadn't achieved anything. He had not achieved $200 billion of in, in reductions in the U.S.-China trade deficit. And then you see what happened in the case of North Korea. He rushed into this summit with no preparation and no forethought in early March, uh, something that I don't think anybody would have advised him to do without the kind, laying the kind of groundwork you need to lay for such a major diplomatic undertaking. And then he hyped up uh, the expectations to the ceiling. A month ago, he was saying that North Korea had already agreed to denuclearize, which obviously was not the case. The White House was, was minting coins to commemorate this. The president was talking about how he was going to get a Nobel Peace Prize. And all of a sudden, the last week or two, things kind of spiraled downward. Mm-hmm. And they realized, wait a second, the North Koreans, they're not actually going to denuclearize, which anybody who knows anything about North Korea could have told him. Yeah. Uh, but so they, they rushed into the summit, set high expectations, and now has backed out of it, which I think is probably the right thing to do at this point. But it just shows this kind of impetuous Trumpian diplomacy that the same style that he used in business, which, by the way, led him into six corporate bankruptcies, he's now applying to the business of the United States. Christian, do you see a scenario in which this summit does take place, whether it's on the original date or later date sometime this summer? Look, it's hard to imagine it happening on the original date. But again, you know, many diplomats, people who have been working this issue for a long time, especially on the U.S. side, they do see that both sides want to have a summit. It was clear from President Trump's body language that he's pretty disappointed uh, for this because of this. And he also wanted this sort of historic summit and to out president all the other presidents and all the things that Max and Sumi have been saying that he kind of wanted to take away from it. So it might happen sometime down the line, but it's 
clear that a huge amount of proper work needs to be done. However, there's also a bit of a problem brewing because what President Trump has done, similar to dissing his European allies at the last minute on Iran, remember Macron of France came to the United States, you know, had a real love-in with President Trump, trying to persuade him that diplomacy was the right way to go with Iran and to keep in the, the deal. And then the minute he's on a plane back to France, the president pulls out of that deal. Similar with the South Korean president, who was in Washington a couple of days ago, basically, as a U.S. official tell, told me, betting the farm on this diplomacy and on being the intermediary, only to land back in Seoul and find that this whole rug has been pulled out from under him. So we're being sort of told that it's possible the Chinese may now step in and and be the main mediators, if you like. In other words, this may have given China a much bigger role than it than it might have had had it just been going uh, between the U.S. and North and South Korea. Yeah. So we'll wait to see how it ha- what happens. Dr. Terry, I mean, it, is this a win for Kim Jong-un, even if the summit never happened, simply by being legitimized by a sitting U.S. president, having a sitting U.S. president, you know, say, reach out to me, call me. Um, that You know, that's never, I mean, that's something the North Korean leadership has wanted for quite a while. Right. No, absolutely. North Korea and Kim Jong-un is a much better place today than he was in a couple months ago. And since the Olympics and summit and diplomacy and Trump agreeing to meet with him, now Kim Jong-un has had a makeover. He looks like a normal leader. Um, and now he has this statement that's making him sound like a normal person, a res- responsible guy even. And he has actually loosened or weakened political will for sanctions implementation when it comes to China. And he has also put a wedge between U.S. and South Korea alliance, as Christian was just talking about. South Koreans were completely uh, just floored by this uh, just uh, Trump just scrapping the meeting. Um, when President Moon was here, he was assured that this meeting was going to take place. So now they are completely surprised. So I think Kim has gained a lot here and without even sitting down with President Trump. I think what we're seeing, uh, Anderson, is more evidence that Trump is better at breaking deals than he is at making deals. He's broken a lot of deals as president. He pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Paris Climate Accord, most recently the Iran nuclear deal. And, but he touts his abilities to negotiate deals. He says he's the world's greatest deal maker. There's no evidence of that so far. He just, you know, is he going to negotiate a deal with Iran? There doesn't seem to be any plan B after pulling out of the Iran nuclear right. deal. And now he raised these, the, these high hopes that he would negotiate a deal with North Korea. And those hopes have crashed. And as it's been suggested, maybe the summit will still take place that, at some uh, point. But, you know, he, he, there's just he's, he's not living up to his hype as this right. deal maker. Well, I mean, that's the thing about a, a summit yeah. between the, the dictator of North Korea and the president of the United States. That would be in past administrations or in future administrations, a reward for some sort of behavior change, some sort of action on the part of North Korea, which it's sort of done it's, backwards. It's, it's backwards. And Trump consistently shows his contempt for but, established norms and kind of the, the established way of doing things. He trusts his gut. He doesn't want to listen to advisors. He doesn't want to read briefing papers. He thinks that he knows what he's doing. And clearly the evidence of his presidency shows that's not the case. Yeah. He is not reaching any of these great deals. I, I got to get break in. Uh, Max Boot, thank you. Christian Amanpour, Sumi Terry, great to have you on both. Uh, you. More breaking news regarding the Russian investigation, this time involving Roger Stone. New details about why specifically the Mueller team is interested in him. Hey, it's Howard Beck, and I've got former NBA champion and current Yes analyst Richard Jefferson on Bleacher Report's The Full 48. For me, winning the championship just validated, you know, me from a standpoint of like, 
All I ever wanted to do was win. All I ever wanted to do was win on a high, high level. And so to get that, then it just made everything feel like it was worth it. The Full 48 is now available on Spotify. And of course, you can always listen and subscribe on the Bleacher Report app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Some more breaking news tonight. Sources telling CNN that prosecutors from Robert Mueller's team have been looking into the finances of President Trump's longtime advisor, Roger Stone. Mueller is also seeking to interview witnesses to gather more information about Stone. Our Sarah Murray joins us now with more. So the interest in Stone's finances, what have you learned? Well, we know that there are a number of witnesses who have been in who have been asked questions about Roger Stone's finances. They've been asked specifically, for instance, about his tax returns. And this comes as in recent weeks, the special counsel's team seems to be calling in or subpoenaing a number of Roger Stone's current and former associates. He's said publicly that he knows of at least eight people who have been called in. At least one of them that we know of has direct knowledge of some of his financial information. Others were dealing with social media. Still others were associates of Roger Stone's when he was still working on Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Uh, But at a minimum, there is certainly a lot of interest from Mueller's team about Roger Stone, his finances and his communications, which, of course, uh, our experts say should be worrisome to Roger Stone. And is this connected to to the reported links between Stone and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange over Secretary Clinton's emails? Well, look, Roger Stone got a lot of public scrutiny because during the 2016 presidential campaign, he sent some tweets out. He made some public statements that uh, looked pretty prescient. It made it look like he was essentially predicting what WikiLeaks was about to do next. Now, Stone has denied that he had any foreknowledge uh, that WikiLeaks was going to release any hacked emails related to senior Democratic officials related to, related to John Podesta, uh, who was then a Clinton campaign staffer. But that certainly drew a lot of public scrutiny. And we know that Mueller has been asking about that. That as well uh, and may have put him on the radar in the first place. And what Stone said about all this? So Stone has denied that he had anything to do with Russian collusion, and he and his allies now believe that essentially this is a witch hunt uh, to try to pin him on anything and bring down a longtime ally of the president. So I'm going to read you a portion of the statement Stone gave me where he said the special counsel now seems to be combing through every molecule of my existence, including my personal life, political activities and business affairs, to conjure up some offense to charge me with either to silence me or induce me to testify against the president. Stone insists he will never turn against the president. And as for the special counsel's team, they're not commenting. All right, Sir Murray, thanks very much. A lot more ahead, including the latest on those classified briefings on Capitol Hill about the Russian investigation where White House attorney Emmett Flood unexpectedly showed up. Also, North Korea responds to President Trump calling off the summit. First, here's a preview of the CNN original series 1968. It's a special two-night event starting this Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Take a look. spring of 68, you got the most violent period of the entire war. Awful sick of it, I'll be so glad to go home. I've seen the promised land, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. For my parents' generation, King was the dream. And then he's gone. I am announcing today my candidacy for the presidency of the United States. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. This was really the death of hope. Wallace knew how to get a crowd energized. Now, I know for a lot of words you don't know. Police have demonstrated hustling over this busy intersection. The Graduate is probably the most important movie of the 60s. I hope to restore respect to the presidency. 
most dramatic and consequential years in history. 1968, a four-part, two-night CNN original series event. Starts Sunday at 9. Are you ready to learn how to build a better consulting or professional services company? Then download the Liston.io show for the best sales and marketing advice so you can deliver your services to the people who need you the most. On the show, I'll be interviewing the smartest people in the industry to share what they know about building a better consulting business. I'll also give you episodes where I tell you specifically how to sell your services with confidence and how to transform into an influential leader in your industry. Your happy clients probably want to help you. It's too hard for them right now. You're asking them to do too much of the selling that you should be doing. Yeah, it's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to disrupt you at some point in time. Your most loyal clients are your most profitable. Ready to learn how other people are building the consulting company you've always wanted? Download the Liston.io show spelled L-I-S-T-O-N dot I-O wherever you get your podcasts. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we just launched the ability for anyone to advertise on CNN Podcasts. You're just a few clicks away from reaching millions of people in a way that you never have before. Advertise for a business event or kick off an awareness campaign for your brand. Start today at purewinning.com slash CNN. Integrating podcasts into your marketing mix has never been easier. Go to purewinning.com slash CNN to get started.